Section 22 of The Bible Under Trial This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr Section 22 Part 3 To obtain just views on this whole subject, and perceive more clearly its relation to inspiration, we need to go a little deeper, and ask ourselves more distinctly how inspiration, on any view we make of it, is related to the form of the record in Holy Scripture. On this point, a good deal of ambiguity and misunderstanding exists, which it is desirable, if possible, to remove. The phrase verbal inspiration is sometimes understood as if it were equivalent to a direct or mechanical dictation of the very words of inspired scripture to its several authors. Conclusions are then drawn from this idea by opponents which, it is safe to say, no intelligent upholder of the inspiration of the Bible would consent to be bound by. I myself, partly for this reason, prefer to speak of a plenary inspiration. Plenary for the end for which inspiration is given, that is, viewing Scripture as a whole, the imparting in a complete and infallible way of the mind of the Spirit on the great subjects of God's revelation. It is by this time a commonplace with writers on inspiration of all schools that the action of the Spirit does not suspend or annul the natural workings of the human faculties, but quickens, exalts, and uses these to the fullest degree in the communication, orally or in writing, of the divine message. The books of the Bible show as clearly the marks of the individuality and genius of their human authors as they do of the mind of the Spirit expressed through them. When we trace further this action of the Spirit in relation to the form of the record, we get much light that is of use to us on the subject of discrepancies. To make my point clear at once, let anyone ask himself in what precise sense he uses the phrase verbal inspiration in regard to the words of our Lord. The first three evangelists have a great deal of common matter and report in many places the same sayings and discourses of Jesus. Yet, as everyone knows, while they often agree verbally, in a far larger number of cases, their reports show considerable variation of expression. It is not simply that one report is longer or shorter than another, but while the idea is the same, the words used to express the idea are often widely different. As instances, take the following from Matthew and Luke. In Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are ye when men shall reproach you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Matthew 5.2 Luke reports the same saying, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Luke 6.22 Matthew reads, And be not afraid of them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, etc.? Matthew 10, 28, 29. 
Luke gives this saying, And I say unto you, my friends, Be not afraid of them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which, after he have killed, hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, Fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, etc.? Luke 12, 5, 6. Matthew gives the saying, There be some of them that stand here which shall in no wise taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew sixteen twenty eight. Mark gives the latter part of this utterance till they see the kingdom of God come with power. Mark 9, 1. And Luke, yet more simply, till they see the kingdom of God. Luke nine twenty seven so constantly. Now, it is perfectly obvious that in all these passages, the thought or meaning is absolutely the same. But it is just as obvious that the form of expressing the thought varies, and that Jesus did not use both forms of expression at one and the same time. It is a difference in the mode of reporting the same thing. We see plainly, therefore, that it is the thought or idea about which inspiration is chiefly concerned and not the precise words in which that idea is conveyed. Though, of course, in Christ's sake, the words are in substance the same also. Verbal inspiration can mean here only that the words are a perfectly accurate medium for conveying the meaning intended, not that they are always literally and exactly the very words Christ used in the precise form in which he used them. This principle of itself is a solvent of many of the alleged discrepancies in the gospel. For example, in the case of the varying forms of the titles on the cross, Matthew 27:37, Mark 15:26, Luke 23:38, John 19:19. 19, 19. Part 4 a quite similar lesson is taught by another class of phenomena. I refer to the quotations from the Old Testament in the New. Some 250 of these are reckoned. There's great diversity in the mode of quotation, sometimes more exactly in agreement with the Hebrew, sometimes in freer paraphrase, or with unessential modifications, and the great majority of cases from the Greek versions known as the Septuagint. But here also, often with considerable liberty. In many cases, the Greek version is followed where it deviates from the Hebrew in important respects. As example, in Matthew 2, 5, 6, and thou Bethlehem, land of Judah, etc. The differences are very considerable both from the Hebrew and from the Septuagint. These have Bethlehem Ephrathah. Compare Micah 5, 2. In Matthew 12, 17, 21, we have, with other changes, the adoption of the Septuagint rendering, In his name shall the Gentiles hope. For the Hebrew, the isles shall wait for his law. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. In Romans 9, 33 and 1 Peter 2, 6, the Septuagint is followed in rendering the last clause of Isaiah 28.16, shall not be put to shame, where the Hebrew has, 
shall not make haste. To take only one other case, in Hebrew 10, 5-7, the Septuagint, as usual in this epistle, is followed even in the rendering of Psalm 46. A body hast thou prepared me, where the original has, mine ears hast thou opened, digged. In brief, the sacred writers took their quotations from this Greek version, the one familiar to their readers, where it served an illustration of their main point, without troubling themselves except in special cases, with its greater or less precision of rendering in detail. Inspiration, as before, shows itself concerned with the thought, not with the precise form of words used to express it. An older writer, Dr. Patrick Fairbairn, has some sensible remarks on this subject, which I may venture to quote. After observing that, in none of the cases are we presented with a different sense, but simply with a modified representation of the same sense, he proceeds, It is, therefore, a groundless and unwarranted application to make of these occasional departures from the exact import of the original when they are employed as an argument against the plenary inspiration of Scripture. Even in those cases in which, for anything we can see, a closer translation would have served equally well the purpose of the writer, it may have been worthy of the inspiring spirit and perfectly consistent with the fullest inspiration of the original Scriptures that the sense should be given in a free current translation. The stress occasionally laid in the New Testament upon particular words and passages of the Old sufficiently proves what a value attaches to the very form of the divine communications. It shows that God's words are pure words and that, if fairly interpreted, they cannot be too closely pressed. But in other cases, when nothing depended upon a rigid adherence to the letter, the practice of the sacred writers not scrupulously to stickle about this, but to give prominence simply to the substance of the revelation is fraught with an important lesson, since it teaches us that the letter is valuable only for the truth couched in it, and that the one is no further prized and contended for than may be required for the exhibition of the other. A third group of cases of interest in this connection are those which relate to the use of round and indefinite numbers. Without accepting the principle of systematized numbers to the extent to which some would carry it, we must recognize that the use of round or indefinite numbers, where the precise figure perhaps was not known, is a not uncommon fact in Scripture. Forty is a favorite round number of this kind, as seen, for example, from its frequent use in the book of Judges. Judges 3, 2, 30, 40 times 2 equals 80, verse 31, and 828, etc. Where it is intended to express that the whole armed force of the nation is called out, or that an army is half destroyed, large round numbers, based on census lists or current enumerations, are employed. This seems the simplest way of explaining such very large figures, which it is impossible to take literally, as in 2 Chronicles 8, 3, 17. This principle rules in another way, in giving a certain technical or artificial form to genealogies and lists. 
Thus, the list of the 70 souls that went down to Egypt in Genesis 46, 8, 27, described in Exodus 1, 5 as all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob, embraces Jacob himself, Ur and Onan, who died in Canaan, represented by Hezron and Hamul. Verse 12, these were born in Egypt. And Joseph's two sons, expressly stated to have been born in Egypt. Verse 27. In our Lord's genealogy in Matthew 1, the names are given in three fourteens. Verse 17. Yet to make the second fourteen, three names of kings have to be omitted. A chronological difficulty is sometimes found in Paul's statement in Acts 13.20. After that he gave them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet, authorized version, which conflicts with the 480 years given in 1 Kings 6.1 as the period from the Exodus till the founding of Solomon's temple. The discrepancy might, if it were real, be solved on the above principle of the adoption of a current reckoning, where precise enumeration is not intended. In reality, the difficulty disappears with the true reading. He gave them their land for inheritance for about 450 years, and after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Revised version. The allusion in the passage is probably to the very reckoning in 1 Kings 6 1. Part 5. Let me now take a class of cases of a different kind. Many of the books of the Bible are compilations from older records. They use, and in some cases embody, materials derived from uninspired sources. For example, the letters of the Persian kings embodied in the book of Ezra, portions of state chronicles, genealogies, tribal lists, etc. But they also embody older prophetic histories and biographies. Compare 1 Chronicles 29.29, 2 Chronicles 9.29, etc. Some of these documents had been handed down for centuries and doubtless had suffered in the usual way in the process of copying and transmission. What relation does inspiration sustain to such materials? Is its function ended in their faithful reproduction and use is given for the purpose intended by the Spirit of God? Or does it lie with inspiration to supply all defects, correct all corruptions in names and numbers, check mistaken readings, and the like? It will be very difficult to maintain that it does. Perhaps an illustration from Matthew Henry, whose devotion to Scripture, even in its letter, will not be gainsaid, may set this matter in a clearer light. He is speaking of the genealogies and chronicles, with special reference to 1 Chronicles 8, 1-32. As to the difficulties, he says, that occur in this and the foregoing genealogies, we need not perplex ourselves. I presume Ezra took them as he found them in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. Chapter 9, 1. According as they were given in by the several tribes, each observing what method they thought fit. Hence, some ascend, others descend, 
Some have numbers affixed, others places. Some have historical remarks intermixed, others have not. Some are shorter, others longer. Some agree with other records, others differ. Some, it is likely, were torn, erased, and blotted, others more legible. Those of Dan and Reuben were entirely lost. This holy man wrote as he was moved of the Holy Ghost, but there was no necessity for the making up of the defects. No, nor for the rectifying of the mistakes of these genealogies by inspiration. It was sufficient that he copied them out as they came to hand, or so much of them as was requisite for the present purpose, which was the directing of the returned captives to settle as nearly as they could with those of their own family and in the place of their former residence. In such cases, as I have ventured to remark elsewhere, inspiration does not create the materials of its record, but works with those it has received. In strictness, the providing and preserving of sound historical material for the sacred record is the work of providence rather than that of inspiration, and a wonderful providence it has been. For instance, Luke appeals for the trustworthiness of his gospel, not to his inspiration, but to the fact of his having traced the course of all things accurately from the first, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses of the word. Luke 1, 1-3. Inspiration is a free, living force which informs and molds the material thus received for the ends which God designs in his written word. Part 6 On the principle now stated, one might easily explain the appearances of discrepancy occasionally met with in the narratives of the Gospels without detracting in any way from the reality of inspiration. For example, as to whether Bartimaeus was cured by Jesus on his going into or his coming out of Jericho. Compare Matthew 20, 29, 30, Mark 10, 46, Luke 18, 35. Such cases, however, seem to me to be perfectly explicable on other and more probable lines. They belong to that part of the synoptic tradition which may be supposed to have assumed a fixed form while yet the apostles were laboring together in Jerusalem. And it is a priori highly unlikely that the statements in the different evangelists are actually discrepant. I would conclude, therefore, with a few remarks on certain principles which apply to the alleged discrepancies in the gospel. Many of these so-called discrepancies, as already seen, are not real. It is not a real discrepancy if a saying is reported or, or an incident related in slightly varying language, or if one narrative is fuller than another, or gives detail which another omits, or if it presents incidents from a different point of view. It is not a true discrepancy, for example, if Matthew tells of two demoniacs at Gadara, Matthew 8.28, while Mark and Luke speak only of one, Mark 5.2, Luke 8:27 Or if Matthew speaks of two blind men at Jericho, Matthew 20:30, while Mark and Luke again tell only of one, Mark 10:46, Luke 18:35.
As Matthew Henry, in his quaint way, puts it, If there were two, there was one. On Mark 5, 1 in pages. A letter comes in as I write, which affords an interesting illustration of this very point. In Huxley's Darwiniana, the professor makes two references in different papers as to the origin of the breed of Ancon sheep. Here are the two passages. At pages 38-39, With the cuteness characteristic of their nation, the neighbors of the Massachusetts farmer imagine that it would be an excellent thing if all his sheep were imbued with the stay-at-home tendencies enforced by nature on the newly arrived ram, and they advised Wright to kill the old patriarch of his fold and install the Ancon ram in his place. The result justified their sagacious anticipations. At page 409, it occurred to Seth Wright, who was, like his successors, more or less cute, that if he could get a stock of sheep like those with the bandy legs, they would not be able to jump over the fences so readily. And he acted upon that idea. Italics mine. My correspondent suggests this as a parallel to the alleged discrepancy between Deuteronomy 1 9 in pages and Exodus 18. Compare my probus of Old Testament, page 278. But it is quite as applicable to many of the so called discrepancies of the Gospels. One principle which explains at least some of the apparent discrepancies in the Gospels is that of the occasional grouping. There seems no doubt that, having regard to the spirit rather than to the exact letter of their narratives, the evangelists in certain instances allow themselves the freedom of grouping or combining their material. In the discourses, this is commonly allowed. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, for example, long passages are brought together which in Luke are found in quite different connections. Compare Matthew 6, 9-13, Luke 11, 1-4, Matthew 6, 25-33, Luke 12, 22-31, Matthew 7, 7-11, Luke 11, 9-13. No doubt Jesus repeated many sayings at different times and places but in part there is plainly a grouping of like material where occasion offers. The same applies to the incidents. This is probably, for example, the real explanation of the diversity in the accounts of the cure of the blind men on the occasion of Christ's visit to Jericho. Luke narrates the cure of a blind man as Jesus drew nigh to Jericho, Luke 18, 35-43. Martin narrates the cure of blind Bartimaeus, naming him as Jesus went out from Jericho, Mark 10, 46-52. Matthew gives the story of the cure of two blind men as Jesus leaves Jericho, Matthew 20, 30-34. The accounts of the cure in the three cases are very similar. It is simplest to suppose that there were really two cures, one at the entering the other at the leaving of the city, and that Matthew's account is the synopsis of the two. Much difficulty has often been felt in regard to the harmonizing of the two genealogies of Jesus. 
These are found one in Matthew 1, 1 through 18, the other in Luke 3, 23 through 38. One descending, the other ascending, and they vary completely after the mention of David. They are both in form genealogies of Joseph, but they plainly represent quite different lines of descent. We must assume, therefore, holding them as we do for genuine, that they are constructed on different principles. The view has often been advanced in modern times that one is the genealogy of Joseph, Matthew, the other the genealogy of Mary, Luke. But most scholars now reject this as contrary to the fair meaning of the text. Yet in reality, if not in form, there is every probability that the genealogy of Mary is involved. The supposition which has most likelihood is that, as Lord A. Hervey in his work on the subject argues, the genealogy in Matthew represents the legal, that in Luke, the natural descent of Joseph. Both appear to touch in Mathan or Mathat, the grandfather of Joseph, and here we may naturally suppose that the key to the solution lies. Jacob is the son of Mathan in Matthew's list. 115. Eli is the son of Mattat in Luke's 3.24. If we suppose Jacob to have had no sons but only a daughter, Mary, whom Joseph the son of Haley married, then Joseph, as next of kin in the male line, became on Matthew's principle the son of Jacob and legal heir to the throne. Mary and Joseph on this view were related as cousins. The only other example I take is that of the alleged discrepancies in connection with the narratives of the resurrection. The accounts of the resurrection of Jesus in the four Gospels are declared by many to be perfectly irreconcilable. Is this certain? I am far from thinking so if the narratives are treated in a reasonable way. The resurrection day was one of great excitement. Events and experiences were mingled, grouped, blended in a way which no one who was not an eyewitness like John would venture afterwards to attempt to disentangle. The different evangelists give outstanding names and facts, without pretending to furnish complete or detailed accounts. In default of more precise knowledge, their statements are more or less generalized. John alone probably for the very end of giving greater precision to certain events in which he was concerned, furnishes a clear and consecutive statement. Yet through the whole, the main facts stand out clearly. The early visit of the women to the sepulcher, Mary Magdalene grouped with the rest, though in reality she may have gone earlier. The stone rolled away. The vision of the angels and their message, the appearances to the women and to Mary Magdalene again grouped in the narrative of Luke, the going to tell the disciples, Mary's going and that of the other women grouped again. John makes the order of events a good deal clearer. Mary Magdalene probably arrived first. It may be with the other Mary as companion. Compare the we in John 20 to the rest of the women coming somewhat later. But on seeing the stone rolled away, she immediately fled and told Peter, 
returning in the wake of Peter and John to the tomb. Then followed the vision of angels and the meeting with Jesus in the garden. According to Mark 16.9, an addition to the gospel based here on John, Christ's first appearance. Meanwhile, the other women had received the angel's message and departed filled with fear, joy, and amazement. One point on which real difficulty rests is whether the appearance of Jesus to the women in Matthew 28, 8, 9 is a distinct event, or whether, as some think, the passage is to be taken as simply a generalized statement of the single appearance to Mary Magdalene recorded by John. It seems most naturally to refer to a distinct or second appearance of Jesus. If so, then somewhat more time must have elapsed during or after the women's visit to the sepulchre that we should otherwise have supposed. Time to allow of Mary's return and of Christ's appearance to her. Possibly Mary overtook the others on their way back, and all told the apostles together. The events of the resurrection morning thus do fit into each other, better than the ordinary catalog of minute discrepancies would suggest. It is at least an exaggeration to say. It is hardly too much to affirm that, as they, the synoptic narratives, stand, they agree only in their unfaltering and triumphant proclamation of the fact that Jesus rose and appeared to his disciples. Smith, page 36. End of section 22. Read by Danny Hamilton. Progresso, Yucatan. August 9th. 2022.